This morning, I am continuing in my summer sermon series, The Power of One Life, looking at individuals that I can preach on in one Sunday, some minor biblical characters. And we're going to be in 2 Samuel 6 this morning, looking at the very, very brief life of a man named Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A-H. He shows up in 2 Samuel 6, and unfortunately for him, does not last very long. But his life has a lot to teach us about worship and about our relationship with God. And so we're going to look at his life. But let me just set the context for those of you unfamiliar with the Old Testament, with Second Samuel, any of that. Uh, David has become the king over Israel. King Saul, who was before him, was killed in battle. And so David, 30 years old, comes to the throne, establishes Jerusalem as his capital city. And his first order of business, the first thing that he wants to do upon becoming king, is to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. Now, even if you haven't read the Bible, you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant probably. So we're going to uh, read beginning in 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 2. I'm going to take it a few verses at a time and explain again some of what's going on. So let me read the first two verses here. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. So, what was the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark looked something like this. It was a wooden box overlaid with gold, four feet long, two and a half feet wide and high. It had rings on the sides with poles that went through them so that it could be carried. On the top was a slab of pure gold called the Mercy Seat with two golden angels or cherubim that were facing each other. And in the box were the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, a golden pot filled with manna. But more importantly than what was in the box, it was what happened on top. This is where God said that he would meet with his people or meet with the leaders, the priests of his people. In Exodus, he says this to Moses. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So the Ark of the Covenant was the central piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies, the the central part of the tabernacle, which is the portable temple that the Israelites had as they wandered around. And it was in that place where God would meet with the high priest or with Moses, whoever the leader was of Israel. So the Ark of the Covenant truly represented, more than represented, it was the very presence of God with his people. And so David, when he comes to power, wisely decides the first thing he's going to do is go get the Ark of the Covenant. Some of you may even remember on the Day of Atonement back in a yearly festival in Leviticus 16, 14 to 15, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. So he is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. And then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. So this is the place where God meets with his people, where the sins are sacrificed and atoned for, where people are made right with God. So why was the Ark of the Covenant not in Jerusalem and not in Israel anymore? Why did David have to send men out to come bring it back? Well, 20 years before David came to power, There was a priest, Eli, and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, brought the ark into battle with the Philistines, thinking it was like a talisman, right? Like, we bring the ark and we're going to destroy everyone. But that's not the way it works. And they were defeated. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. 
And they were convinced it was a god, so they brought it into the temple of their god, Dagon. And the next morning they came to the temple, and their statue of Dagon was on its face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They put it back up, and then the next morning it was on its face again, but broken in pieces. And so freaked out, as they were, by what this Ark of the Covenant was all about, they moved it around from place to place. But everywhere it went, it brought calamity upon their people. So finally, they put it on a cart, led by two cows, and they just sent it away. It's back to Israel. And the story goes that as the men of Israel saw the Ark, Covenant, uh, Ark of Co- the Ark of the Covenant coming, they rejoiced, but some of the men who first found it looked inside to see what was in there, and they were obliterated in the process. And so in 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 2, this is what happens. It says, So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They took it to, the, to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the Ark of the Lord. And it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. Okay? So 20 years, it's in this guy's house, and they're just looking after it, taking care of it, but it's not in Jerusalem. It's not in the midst of his people where it belongs. David comes to the throne. First order of business is we are going to go, and we're going to bring that ark back. We're going to get God's presence back where it belongs in its rightful place. So continuing in 2 Samuel 6, verses 3 through 5. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah, there he is, and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guarding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. 30,000 men. It's quite the celebration dancing and singing as they bring the ark back on this cart back to Israel. There's three things in particular as we're going to read through the story that I want to get us to focus on. And the first, I think we learn from this story is this, that we need God's presence. We need the presence of God. That David knows if he's going to have any hope of being successful as a king, if, if Israel is going to have any hope of being peaceful and victorious, what do they need more than anything? They need God's presence in their midst. They need the ark of the covenant. They understood that power and strength was not just going to come from his might and his wisdom as a ruler. It was going to come from God. Moses understood this many years before. He had said this to God. He said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. That's a great line. It's a great line for this morning. It is a great line for your life. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. If your presence is not here this morning, why are we here? If your presence is not guiding me in, in my life, what's the point? And some of you need to be reminded of that today, that more than anything, you need the presence of God in your life. That this thing we're doing here, this Christian faith, is not primarily about doing good deeds, right? It's not about some general belief that there is a God in heaven. It's about the presence of God. It's about having the presence of God in your life. His power, his love, his encouragement. It's about living your life in a way that says, if your presence is not with me, don't send me out. If your presence is not here in our midst, then what are we doing? Why are we gathering here? You are the reason for my life, and I need you. So before we move on to see what happens with Uzzah and with David, can I ask you that question? How are you prioritizing his presence in your life when you wake up, when you go through your day, when you lay down at night? More than anything else, that is what you need is the presence of God. 
So David, prioritizing the presence of God, as he becomes king, the first thing he does is say, we got to go get the ark, and I'm sending 30,000 men, and we're bringing it back. There's going to be no one who's going to steal this ark from us. And he puts it on a cart, and he has these two gentlemen, Uzzah and Ohio, guarding the cart. But then things take a turn for the worse. Verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez-Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. I've always wanted to preach a sermon series on worst Bible stories ever. And this, this would be on that list. You have David, a man with a heart after God, who understands that the first thing he needs to do is prioritize the presence of God. And so he gathers 30,000 men to go out and get that ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. And they are praising God with all their might, with all their instruments. They are singing and celebrating. And then the oxen stumble. And Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark. And he is struck down dead. And the celebration comes to a screeching halt. And David says, how can the Ark of the Covenant come to me? And he stops the procession. And instead of continuing to bring the Ark back to Jerusalem, he drops it off at the nearest house, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, a foreigner. So what happened here? What went wrong? So remember, the Ark of the Covenant. That was the place most associated with the holy presence of God, the Ten Commandments in the chest as a reminder of God's law, his holy law and expectations, that ordinary people could not just come into the presence or even look upon it. Only the high priest once a year could come before the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. And that high priest had to wash multiple times and even had to wear sacred underwear. There's even instructions for that before he came in. That's how special the Ark of God was, his holy presence. And more than that, in the book of Numbers, he had laid out instructions on how to transport the ark. Numbers 4. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and cover the ark, cover the ark of the testimony with it. And then they are to cover this with hides of sea cows, spread a cloth of solid blue over that, and put the poles in place. Right? Cover the ark. Cover it again. Put the poles in place. And then verse 15. After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites are to come to do the carrying. That was a division of the priests, the Kohathites. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. Okay? So Numbers chapter 4, God lays out, when you're going to move the Ark of the Covenant, my holy presence, this is not some box here that you're moving. So cover it. Cover it again. Put the poles in. Have the priests carry it. Do not touch it or you will die. Instructions were clear, weren't they? What did David do as he sent these 30,000 men out? They put it on a cart, a new cart. You know, he probably thought it's a new cart at least with the oxen carrying it, a couple guys guarding it. And then the oxen stumbled. The ark looked like it might tip. Uzzah reached out. And true to his word, he died. 
because he did not take seriously the holiness of God. Holiness is a kind of a key word in this passage, right? If you don't understand holiness, let me share from the best book on holiness. is R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. He said this, Holiness is that sense, is that sense in which God is above and beyond us. It tries to get at his supreme, supreme absolute greatness. He is higher than the world. He has absolute power over the world. The world has no power over him. Transcendence describes God in his consuming majesty, his exalted loftiness. It points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. He is an infinite cut above everyone else. That God is like fire. God is like electricity. God is like lightning. That you do not just casually go and touch a light socket, right? You don't casually go and play with fire or you will be burned. And God is holy. He is not like us. And you cannot approach him as if he were your buddy. And the ark... And the restrictions around it were meant to communicate this aspect of God's character, that he is holy, that he is not like us, that you cannot just see and touch him and live. And here is David putting the Ark of the Covenant, the holy presence of God, on a cart guided by oxen with a couple men there just to make sure it didn't tip over and fall. And Uzzah reaches out to steady it, and he is killed. Again, R.C. Sproul says this, Uzzah was doing what seemed right to him in God's presence. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth, but it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The earth is an obedient creature. It does what God tells it to do. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason. There is nothing polluted about the ground. And even though Uzzah is the unfortunate one who dies, they all deserve to die for their irreverence. David, most of all, for his leadership. And so David, seeing what happens to Uzzah, rightly says, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How can a sinful man like me live in the presence of a holy God? He's, he, he went from complete joy and celebration to abject fear in a moment. And he says, I'm going to drop this ark off at someone's house because I don't know that I can bring this back to Jerusalem. And survive. This is what happens when the presence of God shows up, right? Isaiah falls on his face. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter, seeing Jesus, saying, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. John in Revelation, falling down as though dead. This is what happens when people encounter a holy God. When I read this story, I think of an experience that Jesus had with a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well, and they're having an exchange, and they're talking about where worship should happen because she says, well, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Where are we supposed to be worshiping? Because the Jews say it happens in Jerusalem, Samaritans say somewhere else. And Jesus says this to her. He says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Got that? God says, Jesus says, God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit, which I think means sincerely from the heart, with your whole being, with love, with joy. That's worshiping with your spirit. 
not going through the motions, not thinking that just reciting words or singing lyrics makes you somehow right with God, but that it's from your heart sincerely, that you will worship in spirit and that you will worship in truth, not coming to God as the God of your own making, but coming to him as he truly is, as he's revealed himself, holy and righteous, loving and merciful, gracious and just, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the rock, the shepherd, the savior. God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And what do you see when you look at this story of David and Uzzah? It seems to me like you've got people who had the spirit part down cold, right? I mean, they, they worshiped in spirit, right? I mean, they, 30,000 men, all the instruments, praising God at the top of their lungs, worshiping him in spirit, but they had neglected the truth part. They had disregarded God's word as to how his holy presence and the Ark of the Covenant were meant to be treated. They forgot that God's a holy God, that you cannot just look at him and touch. And so they dealt with some serious consequences as a result. That God is not a tame God. He's not just their buddy. He is holy. He must be respected and worshipped, not only in spirit, but in truth. And the mood of the crowd goes from celebration to terror in a moment. So again, the second thing we learn from this passage is this. Not only that we need God's presence, but that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. And it can be helpful to think, you know, on a, on a continuum or a spectrum here. And on the one hand, there are those who worship God in spirit. But raw emotionalism just doesn't honor God, Right? Worship that is just emotionalism. Just because you feel emotional in worship does not mean that the Holy Spirit is moving. Unless you think that a Taylor Swift concert or Beatlemania, right, were moves of the Spirit. Just because you feel emotional doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is moving. Just because you leave church feeling like you are on a high, that you've cried and screamed, doesn't mean you met with God. It just might mean that the music, the power of music has moved you. Spirit without truth is not a move of God. But on the other hand, neither is cold truth without spirit. Just because you say the Our Father, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom come, the will be done on earth as heaven, right? Anyone ever done that before in your life? Just because you say words like that, does not mean that your spirit is engaged. Just because you're singing a song doesn't mean that you're worshiping in spirit. How many of you this morning sang a song and then maybe halfway through you realize, like, I'm not even paying attention to what these words are. I'm just singing them. As if that's what God is looking for is just, you know, people singing. God is looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth, sincerely from their heart, engaged in worship, but in the truth of who he is. It's one of those balances that Rich and I and those who have led worship and choose songs have to do when you're looking at the songs that are out there, right? I mean, there are some songs that really get the, you know, emotions moving, but then you read the lyrics and you're like, ah, you know, is that really communicating the truth of who God is or is it just an emotional song, a song meant to manipulate emotions, right? Or there's some other songs that may be really truthful, but... Do they really get people engaged spiritually with God? 
God is looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. I don't know where you fall in that continuum. Some of you may be more kind of prone to the emotionalism, but forgetting that that doesn't necessarily mean you've met with God. And some of you may be more prone to the truth part. You know, you're looking at the lyrics and you're all about that, but are you really engaged with God? And sometimes in a church like ours, we can be like Uzzah, unfortunately, emphasizing the familiarity of God, but neglecting his holiness. That we highlight the nearness of God and the friendship of God. How we can approach God boldly. Like it said in Hebrews 4 that we read. We meet in converted office buildings, right? Not in sanctuaries with high ceilings and stained glass that was meant to communicate the transcendence of God. The holiness of God, that he is other. We talk about the love of God, but maybe not so much the holiness of God. Somehow reducing God to this beggar who's begging for our attention, right? Pay attention to me. Give me worship. Instead of recognizing that he is the holy God, we do not approach him like he's somebody. Again, R.C. Sproul put it this way. It is the confusion between justice and mercy that makes us shrink in horror when we read the story of Uzzah. When God's justice falls, we're offended because we think God owes us perpetual mercy. We must not take his grace for granted. We must never lose our capacity to be amazed by grace. Why don't you read that one again to yourself? Who are we to come nonchalantly into this place, into the presence of God? Right? As if he were just somebody, some pal we were coming to hang out with, as opposed to the holy God of the universe who is here by his mercy, who if he actually showed up in his holiness, you would all fall, fall down as though you were dead, as you saw your sin in the light of his perfection. How dare we just come nonchalantly before him? Or think of it this way. How would you come into the presence of a king, a president, a celebrity, someone that you looked up to and honored? How would you come to something important like a job interview? How would you come into the presence of someone you respected? Would you not show up early? Prepare yourself. This is not meant to shame you. This is meant to hold up a mirror and say, when you enter this place, You are coming into the presence of a holy God. That the only reason that we can stand before him is because of Jesus, not because of us. It's because Jesus died in our place because of the grace and mercy he offers us that we can stand and not be zapped to the ground like Uzzah. God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's finish the story now of what happened now that Uzzah, unfortunately, is no more. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. 
as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house. When he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Three months pass. David sees that the house of Obed-Edom is being blessed, and he sends to bring the ark back the correct way. Two things changed. First of all, he read the instructions. First Chronicles 15 tells us that. David said, David said, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers to sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. So the first thing that happens is that he sees God as a holy God and he has prescribed the way we're meant to bring the Ark of the Covenant and he follows the instructions this time. The second thing that happens is that not only does he see the holiness of God, but he sees the mercy of God because he sees Obed-Edom, the Gittite, this foreigner, has been blessed by God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant. Because David was afraid, obviously, of God's holiness of what would happen if he brought the Ark back. But now he sees God's mercy, not just his holiness, but his mercy. Where does the joy come from? This, this joy that David and those experienced before the Lord, dancing with all their might and celebrating. I think it comes primarily from seeing those two things, the holiness of God and the mercy of God. The holiness of God, yes, that he is perfect in every way. He is not like us. And we have broken his laws. We have dishonored him. We have disrespected him. We do deserve death. All those sacrifices of bulls and goats were meant to be a constant reminder to them that they cannot come into God's holy presence without sacrifice. But it's not just about his holiness. It's also about his mercy. That we are not treated as our sins deserve. That we are not zapped to the ground. We are here sitting, standing before a holy God because of Jesus. Let me read Hebrews chapter 10. This is, from, this, is, this is what those sacrifices were pointing to in Jesus. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? 
for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, referring to Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If you couldn't follow that, he's saying, all these Old Testament sacrifices of bulls and goats could never take away sins once for all, otherwise they'd, be, they'd stop doing them. But they were to point to Jesus that by his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, we're forgiven. Our sins are taken care of. And then he sat down. He doesn't need to do it again. We've been made perfect in the sight of God. And now, it's not just a holy God, but it's a merciful God that we can come in the presence of without fear. True joy comes from experiencing both the holiness and the mercy of God. It comes from recognizing that you are coming into the presence of a holy and perfect God. That those of us who waltzed in here this morning, right? If you showed up 10 minutes late and you weren't really thinking about God and all that, recognizing and, and forgetting and missing the fact that you are coming into the presence of a holy God that the only reason we can come and not fall on the ground is because of his mercy. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his mercy through Jesus that we come to him. He's a holy God. He's perfect in every way. And yet he is a merciful God who has not treated us as our sins deserve, but loves you so much that he gave his son Jesus to die in your place to take the punishment you deserve to make a way for you to have eternal life and a right relationship with him. That's where joy comes from. That is where true joy comes from, the, the, the dance and praise God with all your heart, with all your might, from seeing his holiness, his perfection, and what you deserved, but also his mercy and his love. God is not looking for people who just believe in him. He is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth from their hearts, sincerely, and according to the truth of who he is, whose lives have been gripped by the gospel of his death, Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Those who recognize coming to this, pres- this place, how can the presence of God ever come to me, like David said? How can God ever meet with me, with what I've done, with who I am? How can a holy God ever meet with me? but who also don't stop there but realize, but God has invited me to come and meet with him because of Jesus. You know, maybe the greatest evidence that you get it, the greatest evidence that you believe the gospel, that you know God, is joy. Right? Maybe that's the greatest evidence. Because religion doesn't, bring joy. I mean, it might bring morality. It might bring a sense of purpose, a sense of order. There's a lot of things religion can give you, but it doesn't give you joy. But God's presence gives joy. When you see the gospel, when you see Jesus dying for your sins, that is where the justice, the holiness of God, and his mercy and love meet is at that cross where Jesus died for you. That is what brings joy. Again, verse 12. 
David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of God with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpet. Now, I know we are a good New England church, right? And it's hard enough to get people to clap sometimes. And again, I am not advocating just just get lively for the sake of calisthenics, right? Or to get your blood flowing. That's not what this is. He's not looking for emotionalism. It's not what God is looking for. He's looking for worshipers, though, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Who recognize that they've come into the presence of a holy God. And instead of being struck down the moment you walked into the sanctuary, you've been invited by God into his presence to know him. That you've been given eternal life. You've been given so much, undeserved, because of his love and mercy for you. And so it's okay maybe to tap your feet a little bit, you know? It's okay to say hallelujah. It's okay to raise your hands. It's okay to dance or to kneel or to lay prostrate. All of those things are biblical. Psalm 41, to clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. It's okay to clap. It's okay to shout. Psalm 134, 2, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. It is okay to praise him, to reach up to him. Psalm 95, 6, come let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. It is okay if the spirit so moves you to kneel before him, to bow down before him. Right? There are ways that through our bodily actions and movements that we can express worship to God by raising our hands, by bowing down, by kneeling. God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That if you truly believe the gospel, then let his joy fill you and worship him as he deserves. True joy comes from seeing the holiness and mercy of God as displayed at the cross. And David danced with all his might. Have you ever danced before the Lord? You danced with all your might before him. And some of you, you know, you might not want to do it in front of other people, and that's okay. But even in the privacy of your own home or even out somewhere where it's just you and the Lord, just worship him, praise him. Dance with all your might. Lift up your hands. Jesus said in John 15, 9 through 11, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and remain in his love. And I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. There is a joy that comes from knowing Jesus. And Michal, who was David's wife, King Saul's daughter, despised him when she saw that, right? She looked at him and just was like, ugh. She saw it as disrespectful and indecent the way he was dancing before the Lord. David said, it's not about you. I'm going to dance before the Lord. I'm going to worship him. And it seems like God was on his side there because it says that she had no children until the day of her death. I'm going to worship an audience of one. I'm going to live for him. Worship him in spirit and in truth. You have come into the presence of a holy God. 
do not come disrespectfully. Do not come without honor. Do not just waltz in here thinking that this is just, you know, some buddy up in heaven who's desperate for your attention. This is the holy God of the universe, creator, the Alpha and the Omega. And the only reason that we are not on the ground like Uzzah is because of Jesus and his death for us. So come, recognizing the holiness of God and the mercy and love of God, and worship him in spirit and in truth. Find the joy that comes from knowing Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll respond in worship. Forgive us, Lord, for our disrespect, our lack of honor towards you, for not recognizing your holy presence when we walk into this place, for presuming upon your mercy and your grace, thinking that that's what you owe us. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to see clearly your holiness that you are not like us. You are perfect in every way. And our sin, Lord, that we, to the very core of our beings, are so full of of sinful self-centeredness and wickedness, Lord. We do not deserve to come into your presence. Like David, we want to send the ark away. How could a holy God ever dwell with us? But we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, for his sacrificial death, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to heaven, that you have made a way for us to be right with you, to have every sin forgiven, to be perfect in your sight, to worship you, to love you, and to know you, be known by you and loved by you. Hallelujah, Lord. We pray that you would Teach us what it means to worship you in spirit and in truth. To not go through the motions, to not just sing words, to not look to emotionalism, but to worship you sincerely from our hearts in spirit and in truth. We might find and experience the joy of the Lord that comes from knowing and worshiping you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.